The Bible warns that in Revelation 17, the kings of the earth will give their power to an apostate church. Today, we're going to see how these words are being fulfilled in our lifetime. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being with me today as we talk about the end of the world, pretty much. I mean, if you don't believe that, then hopefully this episode will convince you otherwise, and it will inspire you to get familiar with the end times, get familiar with what the Bible says, and Revelation especially, so that you are not deceived by what is coming on the horizon. Because what is coming on the horizon will deceive a lot of people. Because it's been decreed by God. God has decreed that these things will happen. They are part of the prophetic revelation that we have in in the book of Revelation, book of Daniel, and all these things that we've been given through Scripture. It must come to pass. And so the question is, will you be swept up in it, or will you wake up? So today we are talking about something very important, which is ecumenism. A lot of people maybe aren't familiar with that word. It just means the drive to unite everybody under one church, under one religion. And of course, that church is the Catholic Church, the mother church, the origin of the churches. And we'll see how just that's playing out today because there's a lot of very interesting things happening in the last couple weeks and months that are ramping up quicker and quicker. Which is, again, if you have watched my End Time series, which I will link in the description of this episode, that you can get edified and learn the truth about the end times because most people are deceived about it. There is an end times prophetic timeline that I created, which is basically a visual, you know, I'm a visual person, so I like to see things on graphs and charts. And I created a chart of the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation so that you can see visually how they're fulfilled in history. Now, what that leads to, what the conclusion it leads to, is that we are in the 11th hour, the end of the end. I don't know when Christ will return. I don't think anybody does. However, what that means is that the things that you're seeing and the speed at which they are happening indicates very likely and very clearly that we are in that final generation where we will see the kings of the earth giving their power to the woman riding the beast, which is the Catholic Church. If all these things sound like crazy talk or they're new to you, then check out my series. You'll learn the truth. And you'll learn today, too, because we're going to go over some of that stuff. But we will see the kings of the earth giving their power to the beast and to the woman, which is the same entity. And we will see the image of the beast. We'll see people being deceived into worshiping the image. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. I have a whole episode on it in my series. We're going to see people taking the mark of the beast. We're going to see all of that. It's a crazy time to be alive. And so hopefully you will wake up because these things are very, very important. There's many of these things that I talk about in my series, so I'm not going to spend too much time on the identity of the beast, the woman riding the beast. I've given you who she is. If you don't believe me, then go watch my series. If you do believe me, but you aren't sure how that all plays out, watch the series. You'll learn. You're learning these things, but why is this all important? Well, a lot of Christians today believe that the Antichrist power on the earth is either a person, and so they're playing pin the tail on the Antichrist. Is it Trump? Is it Obama? Is it Bill Gates? Is it Elon Musk? Et cetera, et cetera. Is it the prince of, you know, Saudi Arabia or whatever? 
I mean, pin the tail on the Antichrist. And if you're listening to people like, I don't know, Nelson Waters, he comes to my mind because he's a, he's a famous one on YouTube. He's leading you astray, folks. And there's many like him who are futurists, meaning they believe everything that the papacy has created 500 years ago with futurism, that everything's in the future. We don't have to worry about it. The Antichrist is still coming. He's just a dude and he's going to walk into the temple, the Jewish temple that the, that the Jews rebuild. He's going to proclaim himself to be God. When in reality, the Bible's warning you about a power that enters the actual temple of God, which is the church, which is the body of believers, and enters it and proclaims itself to be God. And that power rules for a very long time. Not three and a half years, but 1260 years. And that's fulfilled in the papacy. And of course, again, I document all this, but most people think that that's what the Antichrist is. Or they think that this Antichrist is you know, or like the Antichrist power is a cabal or a globalist, communist, you know, new world order type of situation. So most people think that, or they think that it's, it's, it's Islamic in some way, that it's going to be an Islamic takeover. Anything but the truth, really. I've heard all kinds of things. And so ultimately it comes down to the fact that people are very deceived and many channels are focusing on the wrong things. A lot of channels focus on Israel, 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 what's going on in the Middle East in this tiny little sliver of meaningless territory that is being brought up to you by the media, which was created by the papacy, by the way. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then watch some of my videos. I have a whole section on Zionism and Christian Zionism in my uh, website, one of the little categories there. You can go there. You can learn plenty about this stuff. The papacy created Israel to further their futurist agenda. Futurism, if you don't know what that is, it's the other half of preterism. So during the Counter-Reformation, the papacy was discovered as the beast. All the reformers universally realized that they were under the beast system. Now, that was a real problem for the beast, because now you had a tyranny, basically a totalitarian Christian nationalist government, but the, the, the reform, the reformation was a grassroots movement. And if you know anything about just social dynamics, that's a real problem if you're a tyrannical government because it's impossible to control a grassroots movement. And so this is, this is what happened. And so they had to change tactics. And this theme of changing tactics is going to be very valid today as well as we talk about all these ecumenical headlines and ecumenical ideas. They had to change tactics. They couldn't just rule with an iron fist anymore because information was spreading very rapidly. You had the printing press. People were printing Bibles. People could see the problems of the Catholic Church. This was a real problem. And so the Counter-Reformation was started. And if you understand why it was started, what the purpose of it was, why the Jesuits were created into, into being, to destroy the Protestant Reformation through counter-narratives, through learning against learning, how the Jesuits control all the theaters in Europe and how this has been the longest running PSYOP that has ever been. And it's continuing and it's almost done. It's almost done. That's what this whole episode about is about today, is that it's almost done. But people don't know their history. They don't realize these things. I talk about it every week and people do not realize these things. They think I'm crazy. They think whatever. Israel, Israel, Israel. Because God has decreed that the majority of people will be deceived. So it is what it is. I'm not speaking for everybody. I'm speaking for those who will hear. 
But nonetheless, your friends, Manuel Lacunza, Robert Bellarmine, and um, what's the third one? Francisco Ribera. Francisco Ribera, Robert Bellarmine, and Manuel Lacunza. Those are the three Jesuits that you owe your premillennial futurism to. Of course, some people believed historically in the church that there would be some sort of future reign of Christ, like a like a golden age. But it wasn't, I mean, it was very vague. It wasn't worked out. Premillennial futurism was really pushed forward by the Jesuits, and they flipped everything around. Instead of a spiritual temple that the Antichrist already walked into, it's a Jewish temple that needs to be rebuilt, that, that a future Antichrist is going to walk into literally and proclaim himself to be God. And so because of that, that's why they started the, the state of Israel and all the things that you see in the Middle East. The, the Jews were nobody before the 1900s. Nobody, nobody knew about the Jews. I mean, people were aware of the Jewish people, but they were, they were a nobody. Then Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism, met with the Pope in 1900 approximately. And 50 years later, you had two world wars fomented by the Jesuits, mind you. And the state of Israel was born and money from the United States and Germany flooded that state billions and billions and billions of dollars to prop up this Zionist power that suddenly now is the big bad enemy that everybody's talking about. Well, not everybody, because you have Christian Zionists who are definitely deceived on that one, but ultimately people are aware of Zionism, and, and that's one of the things people say, oh, that's the future. We're going to be you know, beheaded by the Noahide laws. Well, not so much. Who created Zionism? And who's going to destroy it anyway? Who's going to assimilate it as we near the end? You'll see how all this stuff pans out as we move forward. But ultimately, you have to know your history. You have to know your history. Futurism and preterism was designed by the Counter-Reformation to take attention off of the beast. Because if you look in history, you see the present moment. But if you're looking in the past, which is preterism, and you look in the future, which is futurism, you don't see the beast. You see all kinds of fairy tales. And this is the point. Everybody today sees that one side is winning, quote-unquote, the white hats. The white hats are in control, right? All that kind of narrative. Well, first off, who wears a white hat? That's the Pope, but moving on. Compare that now. There is obviously a dialectic going on. There's a dialectic between two sides, that one of them seems to be good, and the other one is the big, bad, evil, deep state communist agenda. There definitely is that. It's obvious now very obvious. Now the question is, compare that to what the Bible says, where the Bible identifies this Christian nationalist power in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 with the little horn and Daniel. That's not so much obvious with the little horn. That's why Daniel, that's why Daniel and Revelation work together and why Revelation is sort of the complement to Daniel. It's, it's very interesting how they work. But nonetheless, it's this Christian nationalist power that the Bible warns you about. And the Bible warns you that there's going to be great deception and a worldwide religion at the end of time. So if the good guys are winning, quote-unquote the good guys, and the bad guys are being exposed and we're moving towards this victory with the light, the light is going to win and we're going to have a golden age of prosperity, put two and two together. Put what you see in the news, all these alternative news pundits and the thing that's happening, the shift from dark to light, you see it. It's pretty obvious now. Maybe four years ago it wasn't, unless you were drinking the Kool-Aid, but now it's pretty obvious, I think, if you look on any news site, that this thing is changing. 
Now put it together with what the Bible tells you, that the end of time, there will be one religion, there'll be a mark of the beast, there'll be a resurgence of this beast power, which is a Christian nationalist system, and people will be deceived. What does that, what does that mean? One plus one, what, is, what does that add up to? It adds up to the fact that the people who are the good guys in quotation marks and the white hats in the quotation marks are actually the true villains. They're the ones that are coming to power and the ones that will enforce the one world religion. And people will think it's a good thing. That's why the Bible says that every, well, not everybody, but most people will be deceived and take the, take the mark of the beast. So do you see what's happening? Do you see why this is important to understand and to have discernment? Because most people are going for the low-hanging fruit. They think that the big, bad, communist, deep state is the enemy because they've been deceived. They're trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist. Today, the Pope is continuing to unite everybody, and you're going to see as we go through these headlines, that this is happening in our generation. You have to wake up. You have to wake up if you believe in a future millennial reign of Christ, if you believe that the Jews are God's chosen people, if you believe that whatever, there has to be a Jewish temple for the Antichrist to walk into, you have to wake up. Because that, at the very least, is deceiving you so that you accept this one world order. At the very most, they may even try to pull off a counterfeit of the second coming. This is what's on the table, folks. I've covered this before, but the, the Christians who wrote the Didac in the second century, we're talking very early church. They had some things in there that were a little off. That's why it's not inspired. But nonetheless, it gives you a very good picture of what people believed a very long time ago. Shortly after the apostolic age, they believed that Satan would masquerade as the Son of God at the end of time. That's how they interpreted Matthew 24 and all these other end times verses. That ultimately, this is all leading to a counterfeit second coming. And that he would be worshipped as such. Now imagine if that, I don't know if that's the case. I think it's a possibility. I've talked about it in my end time series. That's why I think all of this is, you have to understand this stuff. Because if they do pull that off... Imagine how many people who expect a future golden age will be ripe for the picking if Satan masquerades as Jesus. That's a profound reality. And that will truly be something that you will need the discernment and the aid of God to see through because otherwise you'll be deceived. So wake up and hopefully today will help you wake up. But if you like this kind of content, make sure you subscribe and do so on my website, because that's the best place to get immediate content and also get it ad-free. I don't sell gimmicky products. I don't ever plan on doing that. I don't sell advertisements. I don't sell, I don't have sponsors. And I don't intend on doing that. I really don't. I don't like renting my space out for gimmicky things. I like to give content. I like to give the truth. I like to research. That's what I like to do. So the one thing that does support me is if you sign up on my website. Now, you can sign up for free. I don't care. It doesn't make a big difference. But ultimately, if you do intend to see older content and to reference other things I've written, like health research articles, get some extra perks, all that kind of stuff, then five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year goes a long way. That's the only way that I ever plan on making money from any of this stuff. I make some money from YouTube, but it's not, you know, it's enough to go buy a Happy Meal at this point. But nonetheless... Stay connected on my website. That is the best place, best place to stay in touch. So let's get started with our ecumenical roller coaster ride.
this is an article from the Vatican, which again, not a lot of people cover this stuff. This is why my goal is to give you these unique stories to make you think. Pope to Catholic Oriental Orthodox Commission. Pray and work for communion. Pope Francis highlights the dialogue of charity, truth, and life in his... Now, I'm going to stop right here just for a second. Dialogue is a word that you're going to see over and over, especially as it relates to ecumenism. Dialogue. We got to we have dialogue together. The dialogue. This is like the Pope's favorite word. And you got to learn to read snake talk because snake talk is very nice sounding on the outside, but it's death on the inside. Remember, the, the devil masquerades as an angel of light, meaning what's on the outside looks so good. It looks true, looks noble, but on the inside, it's total death. And so this is, this is the hallmark of snake talk, is that there's something that sounds really easy, and it's just, oh man, you can just take it right in. But in fact, it actually is very evil. Truth and Life addressed the Joint International Commission for Theological Dialogue between the Catholic Church and the Oriental Orthodox Churches. Now, if you've never heard about Oriental Orthodox, it's not Eastern Orthodox. There are two different churches. Oriental Orthodox, I believe, has about 100 million people in it. It's a very large enterprise. It's very old, too. Pope Francis on Friday received members of the Joint International Commission for Theological Dialogue between the Catholic Church and the Oriental Orthodox Churches at the Vatican on the 20th anniversary of the commission's foundation. So there's a commission for dialogue that started 20 years ago. Keep that in mind, because there's a lot of things that started in the last, oh, 100 years or so. Actually, really since the Vatican, or since the Vatican II Council. I mentioned something, I hate to stop again, but I mentioned that the change of tactic is what happened with the Counter-Reformation. And especially, that is very pronounced in Vatican II. After Vatican II, the mother church changes tactic from the oppressor, from the destroyer, to the seducer, to the one that's inviting people. And, you know, we need to do this with love and peace. The Protestants aren't heretics anymore. There are separated brethren that we need to bring back into the fold. Ecumenism, the charismatic movement came out of Vatican II. Look into it, the Catholic charismatic renewal, all these things to unite the mother church with all of its harlots that it generated, all her harlot daughters. That's what the Bible tells you, that she's the mother of harlots. A harlot is is an apostate church as of the New Testament because the woman represents the church, the true church, the bride of Christ or the virgin. The counterfeits are the harlots. Of course, the mother harlot is the ultimate counterfeit. But the counterfeits are the harlot daughters of the mother church. But nonetheless, all these things change as of Vatican II. And this is going to be, today, all these things are coming out of that movement. You're going to see from there, and even before that with some of the councils on world religions that we'll look at, basically the last hundred years have just been increasingly changing the tactics. Very, very interesting from dark to light. With approximately 50 million members, there you go, so 50, not 100 million, but they're still pretty big. The Oriental Orthodox Churches represent an ancient Christian tradition that recognizes the first three ecumenical councils while addressing, adhering to a Myophysite Christology, the subject of ongoing ecumenical discussion. So long story short, this is actually, this is a good one for the Eastern Orthodox because they say, oh, we're, we're the true religion. We didn't, you know, the Catholics actually split off from us. That's wrong. The first church ever to split from the Catholic, the universal church, 
was the Oriental Orthodox Church with the Council of Chalcedon in 432 AD. You can look this up. You can look it up on Wikipedia. There's a nice little graph there, but the, the first church to split was the Oriental Orthodox Church, meaning the Eastern Church. And they split off because of the Council of Chalcedon was about determining how do we reconcile the incarnation. Christ has two natures. He's one person. Human nature, divine nature, one person. This is the mystery. And of course, the Oriental Orthodox rejected that. They said, no, he has one nature. And so, whatever, we're splitting from you. We're going to go start our own thing. So the Eastern Church was the first to split. That's number one. Number two is, why is this important? It sounds like, well, you're just splitting philosophical hairs. No, it's not. The two natures, one person thing is critical to the gospel. Because Christ has to have both a human nature in order to to take on the punishment we deserve and be a propitiation. He had to be human in every way. Otherwise, the atonement doesn't work. You can't punish a divine being for what humans did. You have to punish a human being for what humans did to be a representative. He's the last Adam. But he's also God, which allows him to have to give forgiveness of sins, to glorify us when he's resurrected and set the template. He's had infinite value, and so his propitiation is worth forever that we can have as a way to atone for us for eternal life. Both of these natures are important, but they're separate. They're distinct within the person of Christ. And of course, you can't draw a line between them and say, see, this is the God part, this is the human part. That's the mystery part. Is the, there's, you know, it's like, with your parents, you know, when you have, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you can see parts of your mother and you can see parts of your father, but they're interwoven in, in seamless ways. Now, of course, that's a flawed example, but ultimately, this is the mystery. And the mystery that the Oriental Church rejected, which means she is a harlot, because that rejects the gospel, ultimately. And there's a lot of other similarities, too, with Catholicism and, you know, praying to Mary and saints and all this stuff. So it's really, you know, these things are very old and this, she was one of the first daughters. So now they're reconciling. Now the Pope is saying, come back, my daughter. Come, it's time. In his address on Friday, Pope Francis encouraged commission members to continue to pray, to work tirelessly in the service of communion and encountering the famine of peace and spreading throughout the famine of peace that's spreading throughout so many parts of the earth. There you go. So uniting around physical, social justice outcomes that can make us forget about the issues of doctrine that are so important. And this is the problem with ecumenism. Dialogue of charity, truth, and life. A counterfeit of the way, the truth of life. But maybe, maybe not. The Pope went on to highlight three inseparable ways to advance on the ecumenical journey that your commission has encouraged over these past 20 years. The dialogue of charity, there's dialogue again. The dialogue of truth and the dialogue of life. How can you dialogue on truth when you reject two natures of Christ? That's something. The dialogue of charity, he said, goes hand in hand with the dialogue of truth pursued by the commission and includes the exchange of visits and letters which have traditionally been a sign of a sign and means of, commun- of communion. The Pope noted in particular that the fraternal visits, gosh, again, look at that snake talk. It sounds so good. Fraternal visits. We're all, we're all brothers. Fratelli tutti. 
That's what the Vatican says. Fratelli tutti, meaning we're all brothers. The brotherhood, that's another Jesuit term that you have to be aware of. The fraternal visits of the heads of the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Malankara Orthodox Syrian Church, and the Syriac Orthodox Church over the course of the past year. So all of these people are coming to meet with the Pope and to have fraternal visits. Isn't that something? So interesting. Thousands of years later, here we are, and it's all coming to fruition. Unity in diversity, another Jesuit term. Pope Francis went on to reflect on the development of relations with the Oriental Orthodox churches over the last two decades, highlighting the great richness in its approach to the issue of unity and diversity. Gosh, again, it's just, we're all diverse, aren't we? So we should unite. In particular, he noted the yearly reciprocal visits of young priests and monks for study in the various churches. So young priests and monks are going to various churches, and he calls that a sign of the Spirit. What spirit are we talking about? Who rejuvenates the church in harmony. The church, in capital letters, to him, is the Catholic Church. And what he's saying is that this counterfeit spirit is rejuvenating the Mother Church because, of course, this has been decreed by God, that she will have her harlot daughters back and she will be worshipped. Inspires paths of communion and grants wisdom to the young and prophecy to the old. The Holy Spirit is not guiding you to unite the world into one church. Because the Holy Spirit wrote in the book of Revelation through John that this is exactly what you need to watch out for. That the kings of the earth will give their power to the woman which is the church, the Catholic church, and people will worship the image of the beast. The beast is the papacy. People will worship it and take its mark. The Holy Spirit's warning you about this. So now if the spirit, quote unquote, is guiding these things, what spirit is it? Hmm. I think John has something to say about that in one of his letters. It's called the spirit of antichrist. May this dialogue of life continue under the banner of the spirit. Of course, he's giving you his Antichrist blessing, man of sin, the Pope said. Full communion is possible, i.e., we will have a new world order religion. He prayed that the 20th anniversary of the commission might be a time of praise and gratitude to God for the progress already made and expressed his hope that it might, quote, renew the conviction that full communion between the churches is not only possible but urgent and necessary so that the world may believe. Isn't that amazing? Gosh, that's amazing. It's just amazing that they have to tell you up front what, who they really are. And if you can see it, if the Holy Spirit has granted you discernment, it's truly amazing. Do you see what he's saying? Full communion is possible and it's urgent so that the world may believe. Well, if you know what the Bible says and you match it to what he's saying, then yeah, it is urgent for them. They don't have much time. Christ is coming back. The world must worship the beast. Isn't that interesting? It's so fascinating. Finally, noting that the commission is now focusing on the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the life of the church, Pope Francis proposed that the members entrust their work to her and invited them to pray together in the ancient prayer to Mary. Now, I'm just going to read this prayer. I don't Obviously, I don't believe it. I don't condone it. Absolutely, I reject it. But I'm going to read it to you so you see the error. We fly to your protection, Holy Mother of God. Scorn not our petitions in our hour of need. O glorious and blessed Virgin, deliver us always from every peril. Who are they praying to? 
Mary is dead and awaiting resurrection, just like the apostles, just like every martyr, just like everybody who's died in Christ. Well, everybody's going to get resurrected, but the people who are in Christ will be resurrected to glory. That's including Mary. You are praying, at the very least, to nothing. At the very most, if you have read things like, oh, what's her name? Helena Blavatsky's... um, Isis Unveiled, there's another one I forget that she wrote. But anyway, to the occult people, which you see they're going to make a nice little appearance in this today's episode with Theosophy. To the occult, Mary is a symbol of Lucifer. Now, if you know anything about the Fatima appearance, I'm not going to go into that, but I covered that in my end time series and how antichrist that appearance was. It was at very least demonic. At the very most, it was Lucifer himself masquerading as the Virgin Mary and issuing various commands and different things. But this is what's happening here. At the end of all this, let's give credit and glory to Mary and let's have her deliver us from evil. When Jesus asks you to pray to the Father to deliver you from evil, this is a satanic inversion of the truth. And of course, it's the man of sin, so he has to continually point you away from God. But nonetheless, the Oriental Orthodox Church, a church that you probably have never heard of, and a church that is warming up to the beast like everybody else. Here's another one. This is the Orthodox Church now. An uninterrupted path of unity. Since 1964, since the 1964 meeting of Paul VI and Athenagoras. On the 60th anniversary of the historic meeting in Jerusalem between Pope Paul VI and the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, kind of like the Orthodox Pope, but not really, sort of, kind of, Athenagoras I, patriarch of Pier Battista Pizzaballa, the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, explores the spirit of encounter set in motion by the two church leaders. What spirit are we talking about that would put them into an encounter to discuss ecumenical things? When the Bible warns you to get out of her, my people. If the Bible specifically identifies the Catholic Church, there is no question about this. This is not conjecture. This is not theories. This is absolute fact. And I go into great detail in my end time series. But besides that, Revelation 18, verse 3, I believe, get out of her, my people, so that you do not share in her plagues because her sins are heaped as high as heaven. Get out of her. Get out of the Catholic system. But if there's a spirit that is guiding these people, saying, go, do this, do that, are we talking about the same spirit? The answer, hopefully, is that you realize is no. But let's read more about it. This is another one from the Vatican. A fraternal embrace that is also a commitment. Gosh, isn't that interesting? Gotta love the language. They have to tell you what they believe, but you have to have discernment to see it. Look at this. Come back to the Mother Church, my child. It's time. Of course, the staunch Orthodox with their, you know, the, with their pride that, that they're the true church. This is this is a big step. Nathanagaras, we're going to read about him a little bit because he was very much a... Uh, a warm fellow towards the Catholic Church, which is interesting, somebody of such power. But hey, look, the Bible decreed, the God decreed through the Bible that these things would happen. You can't stop it. So we marvel at it that it's coming true, of course, because God said it would. 
but we can't stop it. That's why you have to wake up. As the church celebrates the week of prayer, we're going to look at this, of Christian unity, Cardinal Kurt Koch, the, per, the prefect of the dicastery for promoting Christian unity, such fancy language for ultimately subverting the gospel, reflects on the relationship between Catholics and Orthodox 60 years after the historic encounter between Pope St. Paul the sixth and ecumenical patriarch Athenagoras. The return of charity with legal force. Hmm. The meeting in Jerusalem made an impact on history, especially because the fraternal embrace, <laughs> I love these words, confirmed both churches' willingness to restore charity between each other. The gesture is before our very eyes as the lasting icon of a willingness and for reconciliation. There's a willingness to reconcile. Yeah, let's, let's go back. This is why in his 2023 message to ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew I, on the occasion of the feast of the patron St. Andrew, Pope Francis highlighted that the journey toward reconciliation began with an embrace, a gesture that eloquently expresses the mutual recognition of ecclesial fraternity. Fraternity is another Jesuit term, brotherhood, dialogue. Remember, the Vatican changed its approach as of Vatican II. And really, it's been kind of going on a little bit before that. But it changed its approach. No longer are we the mother church that is burning people at the stake and persecuting people and calling them heretics. The mother church is now open to all, and we need to have dialogue. Let's put it behind us. Come on. We're all the same. We all have the same spirit and same God, right? That's been going on for a very long time. And these efforts are culminating in our generation. You have to realize that. But one other thing I want to mention is this ecclesial fraternity. The word ecclesia in Greek essentially just means assembly. It was an assembly of people. It doesn't mean institution. This is the grave deception that a lot of people don't realize. Ecclesia was assembly because people were getting together just to break bread, to have worship together, to get in people getting together in people's houses. It was very decentralized. As of Constantine, which we're going to read about in a little bit, because it's something very interesting has happened recently with Constantine and Rome. As of Constantine, that idea became conflated or attached to the idea of a physical church, ecclesiastical, suddenly now means having to do with the institution of the church. That's how the counterfeit gets you. It gets you a little with a little bit of the truth but then it inserts the lie. This is the thing to keep in mind. Moving on. The memorable meeting in Jerusalem paved the way for the one that took place on 7 December 1965, when the leaders of the two churches lifted their mutual excommunications of 1054. You don't see anybody covering this, do you? That in around the 60s, that the mutual excommunication that was present for almost a thousand years between these two major churches, the Orthodox Church has like a 900 million member base. Almost a billion people. The Catholic Church is over a billion. Huge, huge news. Huge prophetic news. Forget Israel and the state of Israel. The fact that the, the two churches lifted their excommunications of one another and are opening dialogue. This should be what's on your eyes and mind because of what the Bible warns you about in Revelation 17 and Revelation 13. From Constantinople's Patriarch Church of St. George and the Fonar and from Rome's St. Peter's Basilica, they affirmed their joint willingness to remove the anathemas. 
the memory of which still persists, quote, from memory and from the midst of the church, so that they could no longer be a hindrance to closer relations in charity. There's another Jesuit word, charity. Charity. Yeah, charity. In this solemn and legally binding way, legally binding. Gosh, you got to love these words. The events of 1054 and their consequences were committed to historical oblivion. That's it. That's a prophetic marker. Just like the creation of the Vatican as a city is a prophetic marker, just as Vatican II, the charismatic movement, all these ecumenical things, these are prophetic markers, not the creation of the state of Israel or what's going on with, you know, Ukraine or whatever. At the same time, it was declared that they were no longer part of the official inventory of the two churches. Isn't that inspiring? We're just, we're having charity and love and light. Love and light. Now let's read about Athenagoras, the first of Constantinople. Here he is. He's the ecumenical patriarch. And let's see what Athenagoras, good old Athenagoras, did. Ecumenical relations. Athenagoras' meeting with Pope Paul VI in 1964 in Jerusalem led to the rescinding of excommunications of 1054, which historically marked the Great Schism between the churches of the East and the West. That is a very significant prophetic event, extremely significant, yet probably not too many people know about it. This was a significant step towards restoring communion between Rome and Constantinople. Of course it is, and it will be the thing that opens more and more doors, because that's what the Bible predicted. And the other patriarchs of orthodoxy, it produced the Catholic Orthodox Joint Declaration of 1965. Did you know about that? which was read out on December 7, 1965, simultaneously at a public meeting of the, what? Second Vatican Council in Rome. In special ceremony in, and a special ceremony in Constantinople. Isn't that something? Gosh, if you know your history, if you know what the Bible actually tells you about the end times, all this stuff is just so crazy. Moving on. The controversial declaration did not end the 1054 schism, but rather showed a desire for greater reconciliation between the two churches, as represented by Pope Paul VI and ecumenical patriarch Athenagoras. Just like the declaration in 1999, the joint declaration of the Lutherans with the Catholics, didn't end the Reformation officially. But, you know, Tony Palmer, who has now passed away, who is a Lutheran minister, pastor, leader, said that the Reformation is over, guys. I guess we're all Catholics now because of the fact that the Lutherans signed a joint declaration of justification. Justification. Can you believe that? With the Catholic Church. Luther is rolling in his grave at such a thought. I mean, it's just crazy. But that's the point. That's how they get you. It's never full-on attack. Do you see the point? The Mother Church was full-on attack for a very long time. If you disobeyed, you were put to death. You were burned at the stake. You were tortured. You were hunted down like an animal. It was very straightforward. It banned the Bible. It didn't allow you to read in any other language. There was a lot of straightforward attacks that the Catholic Church did. But now everything is sneaky, 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 moving around the bushes, just slowly worming its way around you, constricting you slowly, to squeeze the life out of you. And then suddenly, by the time you realize you're surrounded, it's too late. This is the new approach. It didn't end the schism, but, you know, it, it opened door. We got to eat slowly. We got to be very gradual. We got to use love and light, false love, 
to erode at all of these things that were very obvious. Moving on. Not all Orthodox leaders, however, received the declaration with joy. Good for them. In his 1965 epistle to the Patriarch Metropolitan Philaret of the Russian Orthodox Church, openly challenged the Patriarch's efforts at reproachment with the Catholic Church, fearing it would lead to heresy. There you go. My man, Patriarch Philaret. Now, of course, I think you should leave the Orthodox Church. I don't think the Orthodox Church is true. There's a lot of things that the Orthodox Church has wrong, like transubstantiation, praying to Mary, praying to saints, praying for the dead, infant baptism. You're not that much different from Catholics, Orthodox. I used to be Orthodox. So get out of her doesn't mean just get out of the Catholic Church. Get out of her means get out of this system. Get out of her, my people. The true church has always been parallel to the counterfeit because the true church, the, the true church is determined by who God chooses to save and to regenerate and to give a new heart to. Those people do not belong to a denomination. Sometimes they do, but the point is the measurement is not your denomination. It is whether your heart has been transformed. But nonetheless, you know, I can't speak on Metropolitan Philaret's salvation status. I don't believe that you have to have perfect theology to be saved. I, I believe that there are people in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church that are saved because they genuinely have a trusting relationship with Jesus, even though they are deceived about certain, you know, dogmas and, and things. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that as the time comes and the mark of the beast will force people to make a choice, that people who are in those churches, God will wake them up. I believe that too. So I can't speak on Metropolitan Philaret's status, but obviously he has discernment, certainly more discernment than a lot of people because he said it will lead to heresy and it will. That's the whole point. This is also another thing on the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, which is a very interesting article just in general about what this function is. The ecumenical patriarch is the Archbishop of Constantinople, and which is Istanbul, and New Rome. Isn't that interesting? We're going to read about New Rome in just a second. And primus inter pares, first among equals, among the heads of the several autocephalous churches which compose the Eastern Orthodox Church. The ecumenical patriarch is regarded as the representative and spiritual leader of the Eastern Orthodox Christians worldwide. So he's kind of like a pope, sort of, kind of. The term ecumenical in the title is a historical reference to the ecumene, a Greek designation for the civilized world, i.e. the Roman Empire, and it stems from the Canon 28 of the Council of Chalcedon. So it all has its history in who? Rome, which is the beast, the fourth beast, and the power that came out of the fourth beast is the papacy, which ruled for a very long time. By the time the Great Schism happened in 1054, before that, people were Catholic. The whole world, I mean, the whole civilized world was Catholic. So that's where you get your beliefs from if you're Eastern Orthodox. But anyway, that's about the uh, ecumenical patriarch. Let's read about New Rome. New Rome it was the original name given by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. We're going to read about Constantine too. Very interesting developments with Constantine recently to his new imperial capital, which was built as an expansion of the city of Byzantium on the European coast of Bos on the Bosphorus, Bosporus Strait. The city was founded as Byzantion by a Megarion colonists in 657 BCE. It was renamed by Constantine the Great first as New Rome, 
Nova Roma, during the official dedication of the city as the new Roman capital in 330 AD, which he soon afterwards changed to Constantinople. The city was officially renamed as Istanbul in the 20th century after the establishment of the Turkish Republic in 1923. Now, I bet you didn't know a couple things. I bet you didn't know that Constantinople used to be New Rome. That was the first name of it, New Rome. Isn't that so fascinating? And what's also fascinating is that Constantinople and Rome both have seven hills. Look it up. Of course, Rome has always been called the city of seven hills. And Mystery Babylon Babylon is the woman church who sits on seven hills. And, you know, that's pretty clear point to Rome. It's the city that reigns over the kings of the earth. But isn't it also interesting? Isn't it fascinating how the word of God also reveals to you in history, when you look them side to side, that New Rome, where Constantine initially began the church-state system, where he basically legalized Christianity as as a legal cult within the Roman Empire, people were no longer persecuted. And of course, there were other reforms that happened after that that it eventually led to the Christian nationalist system that ruled the earth for over a thousand years, very long time. But Constantine was the man that started it all. And if you know about Constantine, we look at, we look at him in the end time series at the particular spiritual power that was guiding him, how he received certain visions to do this. Very, very interesting how he put the letters of Christ on one side of the coin and the sun God on the other, how he was having a dual function as basically the vicar of Christ. I mean, he wasn't officially called the vicar of Christ, but he was kind of the first Pontifex Maximus Pope, really. If you look in history, this idea of the, the God King that is both the military leader, the political leader, and the religious leader. He was really the first one of Christianity. Very fascinating. And he, but yet he was also the head of the pagan religions. And so there's this fusion that we see through Constantine. Very, very fascinating. And also that Constantinople or New Rome also had seven hills. And this is where this initial counterfeit began. And of course it was fulfilled as Rome became the new capital of the church, the Bishop of Rome. But isn't it interesting that both apply? Both apply. Fascinating stuff. Just fascinating stuff. But now let's read about the Colossus of Constantine. This is a statue that basically is, it was a statue. It was a huge statue of Constantine. to various body parts, as you can see. And it got rebuilt very recently. In 2024, a one-to-one -one scale reconstruction of the Colossus of Constantine was unveiled in Rome as a result of collaborative effort between the Capitoline Superintendency, Fundazione Prada, and Factum Foundation, Foundation for Digital Technology and Preservation. Yada, yada, yada. The statue is displayed in a garden behind the Capitoline Museum. This garden is very suspect, by the way, and is planned to remain in the current location at least through the Jubilee year of 2025. It's interesting how there's Project 2025 how that's after the U.S. election. All these things are all coming to a head. Very fascinating. But the Colossus of Constantine has been rebuilt, and he's been placed in a garden. Now, if you know anything about the occult and their groves, their worship in groves, then that's suspect to me. I'm not making any accusations. I'm just saying this is 
an eyebrow razor. But look at this statue. This is the Colossus. Very occult-looking statue with an orb and a giant hand. Doesn't look very Christian, and you'll see why. A reproduction of the 13th meter statue bronze cloak draped over Constantine's left shoulder was publicly unveiled on Tuesday, offering a rare view of the towering statues built in ancient Rome to glorify the gods or emperors. Hmm. If that's what the Romans were doing, why would you repeat that in the modern day, I wonder? The impression one has before this sculpture of the emperor elicits what must have been the sensation of his subjects before an imperial image. Say Claudio Persici, Rome's top official for cultural heritage. Yeah, it must elicit that impression, huh? You know, the, the, the impression that people were worshiping those images and thinking that they were gods. Gosh, it must elicit that same image, doesn't it? For hundreds of years, various pieces of marble still displayed today within the museum's top, atop Rome's Capitoline Hill, which is one of the seven hills of Rome, were all that remained of an imposing statue of an, of an emperor or divinity. Now, they don't know what the statue was of, which is interesting. It was not until the 19th century that the protagonist was identified as Constantine the Great, so it took a while. The first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity were, let's be conservative with that language, he wasn't necessarily Christian, we don't know, who moved the seat of the empire from Rome to Constantinople before his death in 337. Resin casts of the ten huge marble parts, body parts have now been brought together to create a towering statue in a garden behind the Capitoline Museum, showing Constantine with a nude torso and holding a staff in one hand and a globe in the other. Jupiter Link. The originals, com the originals comprise two hands and two feet, a knee and a shin, two fragments of bicep complete with bulging veins, a portion of chest and Constantine's massive head complete with a Roman nose and cleft chin. The statue they form is the largest handed down from antiquity, Percy Persici told journalists. The pieces have been housed atop the Capitoline Hill since 1486, but no one ever had thought to study what the relationship between these fragments was. Closer study, however, allows modern-day archaeologists to determine that parts of the statue of Constantine were perhaps <coughs> readapted from an earlier statue. Hmm. Do tell. In particular, details at the chin indicate that the original statue wore a beard. One theory is that the statue depicted Jupiter, king of the gods, or Satan, in other words, and was the counterpiece of the centerpiece of the ancient of ancient Rome's most important temple atop Capitoline Hill, whose foundations are still visible today. There's also a temple to Saturn right across the street from the Vatican in the center of Rome. That's still there. Oh, it's just for tourists, don't worry. I'm sure it has no meaning to the people who pull the strings. Coins and medallions from the era just before Constantine depict Jupiter seated with his right knee exposed, similar to Constantine's pose in this Colossus. Hmm. Constantine is, the only, is only the latest in a long chain of emperors who have had themselves depicted as Jupiter. Perisi, per, per, man, that's a tough name, Persici, said. So he's being depicted as Jupiter. People were worshiping these things. Remember, Constantine was both pagan and head of the quote-unquote Christian church at that point. So what's going on here? Why are they suddenly deciding to erect a statue of Constantine? who was, what did Constantine do? What is he famous for? He legalized Christianity and he fused it with paganism, turning it into a counterfeit 
Christian nationalist system. He's the one who laid the groundwork for what we have today. Now, again, I don't know if he was born again. Maybe he repented on his deathbed. Maybe God changed his heart. I don't know. But from everything I've looked at with Constantine, he's not the person who the Catholic Church and the Orthodox tell you. Of course, they have to raise him up as a saint because he's the one who set the foundation for these things. Do you see? But now, put this together with everything we're covering today. How Rome, remember, these people are a cult. They think in occult ways. They tell you beforehand what they're doing. They believe in occult practices with statues and images and making a statement through various things that they build and bring into the world. Why would they erect a giant colossus of Constantine in 2024 when all these things are shifting, ready to pop from dark to light, from the dark of the old world system of communism, atheism, liberalism to the light of Christian nationalism? Isn't that interesting how the timing of this is just so perfect? Very, very interesting. I hope you see what I see because it is very interesting. Now, here's a couple more articles on just this mystery Babylon religion, uniting the world to herself, not just Christians. We'll see some more with Christian churches, but now we're going into the pagan sphere. Cardinal Teagle celebrates Lunar New Year with the Chinese, with Chinese in Rome. Gosh, this is such a good one. We're going we're gonna to read quite a bit here. The church does not shine with its own light. They tell you the first sentence. They tell you exactly what they are, the counterfeit. They can only give the world the light of Christ, reflecting it on its opaque body as the moon does with the sunlight. Isn't this just amazing? Counterfeit language. Of course, they have to tell you what they are. They are a counterfeit. They reflect the light of Christ. They aren't giving you the light of Christ. If I share the gospel with you and I'm opening the Bible and pointing you to the gospel, or I just cite to you gospel the gospel in various forms, from various places, or talk to you about God's plan for salvation or God's plan for humanity. I am sharing God's light with you. It's not my light. Although Jesus said, you are the light of the world, right? But when we spread the gospel, I'm giving you the light. I'm sharing that light with you. It's there. But if I'm reflecting it off my opaque body, my lifeless opaque body, I'm reflecting that light. It's a different light. You know, in fact, actually people have measured moonlight versus sunlight. It's very different. Moonlight is actually cold, strange enough, which opens up another can of worms, but that's besides the point. Moonlight is actually very different than sunlight. So it actually doesn't reflect the sun's light as people think. But anyway, that's another can of worms. The point is, if it were reflecting the sun's light, you're not having the original light anymore. You're a counterfeit. You're taking that light from the sun and reflecting it through your opaque body. You're changing the light. Looks like light from the sun, but it's not. It's a different kind of light. Do you see the point? Do you see how they have to tell you who they are? But most people don't have discernment. They just get caught up in the poetic language and think, oh, it's so beautiful. Cardinal Luis Antonio G. Tagle, pro-prefect of the dicastery for the evangelization, offered this powerful image drawn from the fathers of the church to explain again what is the source and the true nature of the missionary work entrusted by Christ to his church? What church are we talking about? Are we talking about the Great Commission? Where we have to go and spread the gospel? Or are we talking about the institution that seeks to rule the world through one world religion? Which the Bible warns you about. Two different churches, people. The Mysterium Lunae and the Mission of the Church. The Filipino cardinal referred to what the fathers of the church called the Mysterium Lunae, 
on Saturday, February 10th. During the Mass, he presided on the occasion of the celebration of the Chinese Lunar New Year. Why are they celebrating the Chinese Lunar New Year? Very interesting. Organized by the Community of Chinese Catholic Students in Rome at the Pontifical College of St. Paul. Now, quick break. If you haven't seen my episode on the dark to light with what's happening in China, the Pope and his pet dragon, I believe it's called, the video it's called, go watch it. There's so much going on in China. And China, again, it's one part of the dialectic from communism to religion. This has been the flip-flop that the Jesuits have done everywhere. They're doing it now throughout the world. But China's a very interesting situation. So go watch that episode. Dozens of Chinese priests, nuns, seminarians, and deacons studying in Roman universities participated in the celebration, according to Fides Agency, together with, among others, Archbishop Fortunatus Nuachuku and Father Samuele Sangali, respectively Secretary and Undersecretary of the Dicastery for Evangelism. Man, they just love their long names. Separated from Jesus, the moon has no light of its own. The Cardinal recalled that the moon has a special place in the reflections of the early fathers of the church. That's because the early fathers were all over the place. They were Greek converts. They were obsessed with Greek philosophy. They were subordinationists, so they were basically believing that Jesus was less divine than the father. The church fathers are not the people to look for your theology. They really aren't. They got a few things decent, but the things that they got wrong heavily outweigh the things that they got right. So this is the problem. Moving on. And it is something that has to do with the mission of the church, with our mission. The sun, the light is Jesus Christ. Pagan. And the church, like the moon, must depend on the light that comes from Jesus. All this stuff is just neo-pagan philosophy. Remember when they put the Eucharist in the monstr- in the monstrance that's got the shape of the sun? Just It's just blowing out sunlight. Same with the logo of the Jesuits, the IHS, with the little sun around it. These things are pagan things, folks. Gosh, that's probably going to ruffle some feathers, but you really need to learn, learn your history. You also need to understand that for the people who <clears throat> indulge in the occult, there is always exoteric and esoteric. Exoteric is what they tell you, meaning the meaning that you are told it means. But the esoteric is the meaning within, that they know within their own group that they have a secret meaning to. This is, it's always double meaning. So when you read these things, you have to understand from their perspective, not from, you know, common perspective. The sunlight is Jesus Christ and the church, like the moon, must depend on the light that comes from Jesus. Why does the church have a different kind of light? If the light is being reflected off the moon, which it's not, it really isn't. Whole nother can of worms, but it's not. But let's say it was. That's different kind of light, especially if you have an opaque body, because now you're changing the quality of the light. The, the sun's light is very different than the moon's light. Very interesting, isn't it? But of course, they're doing that to unite with the Chinese. The lunar year, you see, we, we believe in that kind of stuff too. You can find your pagan beliefs, which we'll look at the Chinese New Year in just a second. But what's the, what's the outside goal here? The outside goal is, listen, you are pagans. You can find your paganism in our religion. See, Jesus is the sun. The church is the moon. Lunar New Year. Do you see how similar this is? That's the idea. Separated from Jesus, Cardinal Teagle Tagle continued, the moon has no light of its own. And in any case, the moon does not keep the light it receives from the sun or itself, but refracts it toward the earth, shares it with the earth. 
Yeah, it doesn't keep the light. You're right. It doesn't keep the gospel. They have to tell you what the truth is, but you have to see through it. My hope, the Cardinal continues, that every year on the occasion of the lunar year, the, that we Christians can renew our lunar ministry. Lunar ministry? Really? Gosh. Turning to Jesus, receiving the light of Jesus, and sharing the light of Christ, not our own light with the world. Jesus is the light of the nations. We are the moon. So much like, like for a sentence there, I was almost like, yeah, agreed. Jesus is the light of the nations. True. We have to share his light. But then we are the moon. Like, do you see how they, they, they weave all these things together? Now let's read about the new year, the Chinese new year. What is, you just type in Google Chinese lunar new year beliefs and practices. What are they? Just curious. Let's see. It's a time to worship ancestors. What does the Bible tell you? Do not commune with the dead. Do not pray to the dead. Do not do anything having to do with people who have died because you're being deceived by demons. Exercise evil spirits. Okay, but if you're not exercising them in the name of Christ, all you're really doing is using some demons to chase away others. And really the two that are, the one that's running away is playing with the one that's helping you chase that one away, if that makes sense, to deceive you into thinking that you have any power. So unless you're exercising with the name of Christ, you're not really doing anything. But, and pray for good harvest. Who are you praying to? Who are you praying to for good harvest? Are you praying to the God of the Bible, Yahweh? Or Jesus? No, you're praying to pagan gods for a good harvest. But God is in control of the harvest. Today it's celebrated by also by Chinese communities outside the country. Lion dance, dragon dance. Of course, China is all about the dragon. What does the Bible tell you about the red dragon? Temple fairs, flower market shopping, and so on are just a few of these rich and colorful activities, rich and colorful pagan activities. Which, by the way, temples a temple is a place where you make a sacrifice and you approach a particular deity because that's a closed-off holy ground. So if there's temples involved, that's another thing. So why the question is, why is the Catholic Church celebrating Chinese New, Lunar New Year and making all these flirtatious advances for the Chinese people to embrace the Catholic system because, hey, you know, you got pagan traditions, come on over. It's okay. Mystery Babylon is the mother of all. See what's happening? And of course, I've covered this with China and what's happening with the Pope there. It's really, really quite something. So that remains to be seen because that's that's in progress. But moving on. Pope's January prayer intention for gift of diversity in the church. There's another Jesuit term that you have to perk your ears up to. Fennec Fox, my favorite little cute animal. At least one of them. They're all cute. But Fennec Fox, man. Whenever I say that, you got to look what Fennec Fox is. Huge, huge ears. Satellite ears. Little cute little fox, but huge, huge ears. You got to be like that Fennec Fox when you hear words like diversity. Especially in the context of what we're talking about. Let us pray that the Spirit helps us to recognize the gift of different charisms within the Christian communities. Are we talking about the same spirit? And to discover the richness of different ritual traditions within the Catholic Church. In the video, the Pope urged Christians to unite our prayers to his for the gift of diversity in the Church, since diversity is an opportunity to rejoice. However, said the Pope, diversity in the Church includes our brothers and sisters of different Christian confessions. There you go. There, there is what the actual agenda is. So up until, oh, diversity in the church, diversity, yes, we got to recognize different gifts. 
And, you know, diversity means everybody that's really part of the church. Not yet, but they will be. See how this is worded? To move forward on the journey of faith, i.e. the journey towards one world religion, we also need ecumenical dialogue with our brothers and sisters of other confessions and Christian communities. Remember the word dialogue? Keep it in mind. This is not something confusing or disturbing, but it is a gift that God gives to to the Christian community so it might grow as one body, the body of Christ, i.e. the Catholic Church. Double speak. You gotta learn to speak snake, man. Snake is double speak. On one side it looks really, really good, but on the inside it's death. You gotta learn this. When he says that he wants to grow the community as one body of Christ, of course, that appeals to your on a surface level to the scriptures where it says, yeah, we have one body, one shepherd, one body of Christ, many different members. Of course, that's what the body, that's what the scriptures tell you. He's appealing to that to make it sound good and noble. The angel of light looks like an angel, looks like an angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, right? Angel of light. But actually, on the inside, it means the Catholic Church, that we got to have one system of worship. The Bible warns you, so pay attention. Pope Francis offered the example of diversity within the rites of the Eastern churches that are in communion with Rome. Look at them, guys. You see, look at all these diversities they have. Shouldn't we be like them too? Of course, under the Catholic system, though. They have their own traditions, their own characteristic liturgical rites, yet they maintain the unity of the faith, he said. They strengthen it, not divide it. So the the Orthodox, because they have different patriarchates, meaning the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox, you know, whatever, however many Orthodox there are, I forget how many, but all these different patriarchates, they're, you know, they're different. They have different rituals and things, but you see they're united as one Orthodox community. That's the way we should all be under the Catholic Church, asterisk, united by the Holy Spirit. No, We'll just take this out and say united by the Spirit, whatever Spirit that is. In conclusion, the Holy Father recalled that all Christian unity comes to us as a gift of the Holy Spirit. It depends what we talk about when we mean Christian unity. If we talk about genuine fellowship between believers who are born again, then yeah, that is a gift of the Holy Spirit, to have fellowship with other genuine born-again believers. Absolutely. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. The Lord is the Spirit. God is there. Jesus is there. But if we're talking about ecumenical unity, where you are sacrificing truth over unity and false peace, the Holy Spirit is not leading you to do that because the Holy Spirit warns you of that. So very important to get your theology right. If we are guided by the Holy Spirit, abundance, variety, and diversity never cause conflict. The Holy Spirit reminds us first and foremost that we are children loved by God, everyone equal in God's love, and everyone different. Gosh, again, snake talk. Look, Adam and Eve did not fall because of communism, atheism, you know, a totalitarian system. They weren't forced into the forbidden fruit. They weren't intimidated into the forbidden fruit. They weren't threatened. They were seduced. Genesis 3 says that the serpent was the most subtle of all the creatures that God had made. So subtle. If you are not as wise as a serpent... As Jesus tells you, be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. If you're not as wise as a serpent, you're going to see this and you're going to read these things and say, gosh, this man is just so well-meaning. 
He's so peaceful. He just wants peace and comfort and every, every good thing under the sun. When in reality, this is pure evil. It is pure evil dressed as light. If we are guided by the Holy Spirit, abundance, variety, and diversity never cause conflict. Never? Really? What about all the false doctrines of the Catholic Church? And things like transubstantiation, which I recently just released an episode on. Go watch it. Go learn the truth, especially if you're Catholic or Orthodox. So you have a ground for your belief. Even if you're Protestant, go watch it so you understand how to discuss these things with other people who believe in transubstantiation and help them get out of Babylon because time is running short. But nonetheless, this is obviously not the Holy Spirit that's guiding these people to do this. This is Judges for Zayed Awards Seeking Concrete Examples of Fraternity. There's another Fennec Fox term. Fraternity, perk those ears up. The document on human fraternity signed almost five years ago in Abu Dhabi by Pope Francis and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar Ahmed Al-Tayeb had the subsequent Zayed Prize, creating a new state of mind and a global movement on dialogue, fraternity, and cooperation between different religions and cultures. So now we're going to Islam. We looked at the Christians, we looked at the pagans, and now we're looking at Islam. Now, says Judge Muhammad Abdul Salam, the prize wants to become more solid and well-known, but already from the 40 nominations submitted in 2019, we have grown to over 100, very much involvement with this endeavor that the Vatican is putting forward, the Zayed Prize. This is how Egyptian Judge Muhammad Abdul Salam, Secretary General of the Zayed Prize, for human fraternity, the first Arab and the first Muslim to be awarded the papal knighthood and to present a to present a papal encyclical. Imagine that, the first Muslim to be awarded papal knighthood. That should be a, a Fennec Fox moment if I've ever seen one, because if you know that the Catholic Church created Islam, if you know all the judgments that God brought on the Catholic Church with Islam, of course, the, the Islam didn't win, but it was there to judge the papacy. It's one of the trumpets. And if you know all these ecumenical things that are happening now, to see that you have a Muslim who's awarded the papal knighthood. Can you imagine such a thing 500 years ago? Fascinating that we are now in an age where Islam is warming up to the Pope's call for fraternity, getting prizes, getting papal knighthoods, getting honors. And they love it. And we're all brothers and sisters. Fascinating. He also presented the papal encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Did I tell you about Fratelli Tutti? Recalled the impact that the historic document and the prizes that followed have on today's world. Gosh, such a historic impact in the Muslim world that the Pope is making. Pope congratulates Zayed Award winners, praises human fraternity. Pope Francis released a video message on Monday, which was viewed by attendees in the 2024 award ceremony of the Zayed Award for Human Fraternity in Abu Dhabi. This year's prize marks the fifth anniversary of the document on human fraternities for world peace and living together. Snake talk for here comes the new world order, the real new world order. Not the distraction with the UN and all the WEF cricket flower eating and having no property, but the real new world the new the real new world order that the Bible warned you about thousands of years ago, which he signed in 2019 with Sheikh Ahmed Al-Tayeb, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar. It's been going on for a couple of years, but of course, the Catholic system created the Islam 
Islamic religion. So it's actually been going on for a very long time. This has been the plan all along. It just had to take time. In the video message, the Pope greeted the Grand Imam and praised the four recipients for their efforts to promote solidarity in favor of the development of humanity. What does that even mean, folks? What does that even mean? How can you reconcile Islam with Christianity? You cannot. Islam says that that Jesus was a prophet, that he didn't die on the cross. It says to judge according to the gospel. And if you judge according to the gospel, the Quran is refuted. Islam has no connection to Christianity. It is a false religion. These people need to embrace Jesus Christ. They need to come to the gospel because they have been deceived. They've been deceived into a false God and a works-based righteousness that doesn't give them any peace in this world. And of course, it's also false, so they're going to get destroyed, which is even worse. These people need to know the truth. The Zayed Award recipients are Sister Nelly Leon Correa, a Chilean nun working with prisoners, Sir Magdi Yakub, an Egyptian cardiothoracic surgeon, and Nadla Tul Ulama Muha, I can't even pronounce that, two leading Indonesian Islamic organizations. Now, I'm going to stop here again, and I want to point something to you that's very important. One of the tactics of the Counter-Reformation, and you can apply this to what's going on here, one of the tactics was for the Jesuits to either use darker light, either you subvert them and destroy them and poison them, or, we're talking about the Protestants, what you do to the Protestants, or you shower them with praises and prizes and seductions and, and making them feel good and, and giving them platforms, knighthood. These are the two weapons that the Jesuits have at their disposal to destroy Protestantism. And that, as of the last hundred years, has been applied more broadly to the whole world. Notice how everything's about love and light now. Come back to the Mother Church. Oh my gosh, we have a, a prize that we can give people who are really focused on fraternity. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Jew or Christian or Chinese or pagan or whatever. It doesn't matter. Here's this prize. Here's some honors. Let's, let's give you some knighthood, some privileges, because you're all about fraternity, because that's the main thing that we need to worry about is fraternity, not the gospel. Man of sin, but moving on. Of course, the Pope is a Jesuit too. I offer them my thanks, said Pope Francis, and I trust that their example will encourage others to undertake initiatives arising from fruitful cooperation. Oh, man. Between people of different religions that serve our whole human family. What does the Bible tell you about families? It tells you there's two families. It tells you there's the family of wrath, which is the devil's family, and there's the family of God. In order to be part of the the family of God, you have to be adopted, meaning you have to be born again. Until then, you are a child of wrath. You're not part of the family that's going to make it. So there is no human family. Of course, we're all made in the image of God. We should treat our neighbors as ourselves, the golden rule. But if you love somebody and you want them to live, then you spread the gospel to them. See the connection? But of course, if you're the man of sin and your entire life's existence is designed to subvert the gospel, you will do such things at every corner that you can take. It's really astounding, really. Comma, respect the dignity of each and promote the values proposed by the document on human fraternity. Pope Francis called human fraternity a means to overcome hatred and injustice. <laughs> Social justice gospel. How do you really overcome hatred and injustice? Well, injustice is probably going to be part of life until Christ returns, but how do you overcome hatred? With the gospel. Not with social justice, not with all these false moves of peace. By peace, he will destroy many. That's what Daniel says. 
of the final power. By peace, he will destroy many. Interesting. In light of all the current events. During these years, we have journeyed as brothers and sisters, he said, mindful that while respecting our different cultures and traditions, we must build fraternity in order to overcome hatred, violence, and injustice. We must come to a new world religion. Well, who should we? Who should lead this charge, Pope? It seems like you're the one that's really knowledgeable. Maybe you should take charge. The Pope concluded this brief, his brief video message with an invitation. Continue to spread the seeds of hope. Again, what did I tell you about Adam and Eve? Did Adam and Eve fall because they were threatened? Or because they were invited? It was an invitation. Hey, did God say that you shouldn't eat from the tree? Did God say that you wouldn't, that you would die? You know, God is just hiding this information from you. He's afraid that you're going to be like him. You should try it. Come on. That's what you should see when you read these types of encyclicals and articles and you hear the Pope speaking. Nothing but snake talk. Here come the Buddhists. Seven Buddhist Christian colloquium kicks off in Bangkok. The seventh Buddhist Christian colloquium themed Karuna in Agape in dialogue for healing of wounded humanity on the earth. What does that even mean? Buddhism is completely contradictory to the gospel in so many ways, man. It's taking place from the 13th to the 16th of November, 2023. These are the types of things you should be paying attention to that are prophetic markers. Not what the Jews are doing. At Maha, I'm not even pronouncing that as an exceedingly long word, but at some university in Bangkok, Thailand. The event is a cooperative effort between the Dicastery for Interreligious Dialogue, there's that Jesuit term again, Fennec Fox, the Catholic Bishops Conference of Thailand, and the Mac, whatever, Buddhist University. The colloquium, the statement noted, will reaffirm friendship and reciprocal understanding built through dialogue with Buddhist partners throughout the world, and in particular, in Thailand, and will also identify common actions to heal the, wo- the wounds of humanity and the planet. Buddhists and Christians from various countries include Cambodia, Hong Kong, India, Japan, Malaysia, Mongolia, Myanmar, Singapore, Sri Lanka, South Korea, Thailand, Taiwan, the United Kingdom. All of these people will participate in this Vatican-created colloquium with the Buddhists. The world is marveling after the beast. Does that say, is that what it says in Revelation 13? That the wound was healed and that the world marveled after the beast. Wound has been healed, not spiritually totally, but the wound healed in 1929 when the Vatican was created. And ever since then, the world has been marveling after the beast. The inaugural session will feature greetings of good wishes from local authorities and representatives of other religions in Thailand in a tree planting ceremony. (laughs) A pagan grove worshiping ceremony, symbolizing the participants' commitment to care and healing. Yes, we both can unite around general things that have nothing to do with truth, about good feeling things like justice and fraternity and caring and healing. We all want to heal, right? Yeah, let's heal. By peace, he will destroy many. By peace, he will destroy many. I covered this article a little while ago. It's a little bit older article. I forget when it's from. It's maybe from November, October, but Vatican's Deepavali message, interreligious collaboration, collaboration essential for peace building. Deepavali is an Indian pagan holiday. The Dicastery for Interreligious Dialogue sends well wishes to those celebrating the Feast of Deepavali and invites Christians and Hindus to join hands for peace. So now we're at the Hindus. You see how this works? 
Buddhists, Hindus, Christians, pagan Chinese practices, they're all welcome back to Mystery Babylon. The feast, the feast of Deepavali, which is in Sanskrit, means row of oil lamps, celebrates the victory of truth over falsehood, light over darkness. Isn't that interesting? And good over evil. Well, wait a minute. If you remember the chessboard with the two hands, there's the evil hand and there's the well-manicured hand. The big error is believing that these are two different people. It's actually the devil that's under the chessboard that's playing himself. And the good-looking hand is about to win. That's what's happening. Very interesting. It is one of the most important Hindu feasts and is celebrated with lamps, fireworks, prayers, and large family meals. Well, isn't that, isn't that nice? We should do that too, right? The Vatican's message signed by Cardinal Miguel Angel Ayuso Guicot and Monsignor Indunil, gosh, these long words, respectively pre- Prefect and Secretary of the Dicaustria of Interreligious Dialogue, sends festive greetings and best wishes to all Hindus. Yes, we condone what you're doing. Never mind the gospel of Jesus Christ that you need to be saved and before you die in your sins because you might have a heart attack at that particular festival and then you'll be destroyed. Never mind that. Well wishes, good enjoy. Eat and drink for tomorrow you die. Enjoy. And while you're at it, come to the Catholic Church because, you know, we accept you. May God, supreme light, it reads, illuminate your hearts and minds, bless your homes and neighborhoods, and fill your lives with peace and happiness. <laughs> if you do not fennec fox at this particular statement, then there's a lot that you need to learn. May God, supreme light. They are tying paganism to their particular religion. Of course, they worship the devil, which is the angel of light. And so you can understand what's going on here. Everybody worshiped the light in the old age, but they weren't worshiping Christ. They were worshiping the sun. They were worshiping all these various gods. That really was just a, paint, a picture painting Lucifer, the one who masquerades as an angel of light. So when they tell you that, hey, you're pagan thing, yeah, 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 God is light too. God, God is the supreme light. You can, you know, we're blessing what you're doing and may he illuminate your life and may you focus on the God of light when you do your various pagan practices. And eventually, yeah, we'll see. We all have the same God. Come on over. What does the Bible tell you? Not only that the angel, that the devil appears as an angel of light, but he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. How do you blind people? With light, with false light. That's how you blind people. Remember the counterfeit, the moon, the reflecting the light? I mean, I think that was perfect because that's really what's going on here. It's a false light. And that false light is coming to the surface and it will be successful because of all of these things and because God has decreed it and the Bible has warned you about it. Report, Cardinal calls for permanent dialogue with Freemasons. Dialogue, Jesuit term. Following a closed door meeting, why were... Why was the cardinal meeting with Freemasons in a closed, closed door? What is the church doing meeting with an occult organization that worships Lucifer behind closed doors? That alone should raise your eyebrow if you're Catholic. Like, really? There's no justification for this. Cardinal Francesco Coco Palmiero reported that he believed an evolution in mutual understanding had taken place between Masonry and the church over the past 50 years i.e. shortly after Vatican II. 
Now, if you know anything about Freemasonry, I have a whole episode on the Vatican's love obsession with Freemasonry and secret societies and the history of the Jesuits. Go look it up. Look at it's. I think it's under the beast in my tags on my website. You'll find it. Very educating episode on the hypocrisy of all of this that's going on. But moving on, addressing the Milan meeting, meaning on the theme, the Catholic Church and Freemasonry, Cardinal Coco Pomeranio, 85, reportedly said that he believed an evolution and mutual understanding had taken place between them over the last 50 years. Things are moving on, and I hope these meetings don't stop there. Oh, I'm sure you do, because you're probably part of the one world agenda. Of course you are. You're a cardinal. This part of your job is to go and do these little operations to bring various sects and groups back into the Mother Church. That's the whole point of your promotion. Said the retired Italian prelate, according to Il Messaggero, quoting sources present at the meeting that was closed to the press. Closed to the press. You're not allowed to know what's going on. Secret. What is a occult organization that worships the devil? If you didn't know that, then, well, now you know. Lucifer is the god of Freemasonry. He's the god of this world with everybody everybody who's not in Christ worships one way or another, either directly or indirectly. That's why the Bible calls him the god of this world. But what is an organization like that doing meeting with the Catholic Church behind closed doors to evolve in dialogue? And I hope that it doesn't stop there, says the cardinal. We're back in the Christian scene, growing together ecumenical events open with Anglican and Catholic bishops. Now, if you know anything about the history of England its tumultuous history of going from Catholic to Protestant to Catholic to Protestant, how the Pope has always wanted England, and it's they've tried and failed many times, like the the bomb plot with King James and um, Guy Fawkes. If you know anything about that, that's that's a whole can of worms right there. Fascinating. But Catholic and Anglican bishops are undertaking a week of dialogue. <laughs> There's the word again. Every time you hear that, put those ears up. And pilgrimages to Rome and Canterbury involving 50 bishops from 27 countries to mark the week of prayer for Christian unity. We're going to look at this. During the week of prayer for Christian unity, bishops from the Anglican and Roman Catholic traditions are gathering for a growing together, a week-long summit of ecumenical discussion and pilgrimage to be held in Rome and Canterbury from the January so it's the end of January, 22nd to the 29th of 2024. So you have 50 bishops from 27 countries that are going to Rome and to Canterbury to have this dialogue of fraternal unity. The Anglican Church. I don't know how many people are in the Anglican Church, but there's probably a lot. Pope and Anglican primate will be call for unity. The unity of Christians is close to the hearts of Pope Francis and the Anglican Archbishop Justin Welby. I'm sure it is because they both are being guided by the spirit of Antichrist. In an ecumenical service in Rome, they called on the churches to not just pursue their own interests, i.e., don't be standing for the truth, come back to the Mother Church. Pope Francis has called for the unity of the Christian churches and all people in the world. Every baptized person belongs to the same body of Christ. There you go, infant baptism and tying salvation to to something physical. Now, there is some truth in this. Again, this is why this is snake talk. Every baptize, if you mean baptism of the spirit, meaning being born again and having a change of heart and a new conscience, then yes, every person 
who is baptized by the Spirit, belongs to the body of Christ, meaning the real body of Christ, not the counterfeit. But of course, he's using a truth and lacing it with a lie so that he can introduce the counterfeit, which is if you're baptized into the church and you're part of the church and you're bat, yeah, we all have this tradition, right? You see, we're all part of the same body of Christ. We're all part of the same system. You see how this is woven just so, again, you got to have discernment, man. You got to have discernment because the snake is the most subtle of all creatures that God has made. And the man of sin is the representative of the snake. The Pope preached on Thursday evening in Rome's Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. Yes, more than that, every person in the world is my brother and sister. And we all form the symphony of humanity whose firstborn redeemer is Christ. Such beautiful words that really just don't mean anything. If you have true biblical discernment, these things are just, ugh, they make you want to gag. Francis said that the question is not, who is my neighbor? But do I make myself my neighbor? Gosh, it seems so well-intentioned. This question also applies to the communities and churches. If they remain barricaded in the defense of their own interests, i.e. truth and standing for the gospel, jealous guardians of their autonomy and caught up in calculating their own advantage, this is unfaithfulness to the good news. What about the jealous guardian of autonomy and the being caught up in calculating their own advantage of the Catholic Church? What about the Catholic Church's jealous guardian, guardianship of her own autonomy, where the Catholic Church says, no, 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 we're, we're not the sister of the churches. We're the mother of the churches. That's an article I've covered. I didn't pull it up here because it just came to my mind. What about that? What about the calculating of their own advantage through the counter-reformation, the Jesuits, and all the schemes of the Catholic Church? What about that? But you see, this is how it works. This is gaslighting at its finest. If you're standing for the truth, well, you're calculating your own advantage. You're putting up barricades. Don't put up barricades. It's unfaithfulness to the good news, to the gospel, because the gospel wants you to unite in one world religion, right? Wrong. In the endeavor to achieve unity, one's own interests must be abandoned and the initiative left to God. Oh, so inspiring. So inspiring. That works for individual believers and having fellowship with other people. Because, of course, there are going to be doctrinal divisions, or I should say differences. There will be differences. And not every difference is worth fighting over and breaking fellowship over. Some are, absolutely. But not all of them are. And this is the important thing why, yes, you should put aside your differences and, and strive for unity with other believers, born-again believers. But what he's using here is telling you to unite with the Catholic Church. This is what's coming, folks. And the Anglicans are all over it. Weak, weekly prayer of Christian unity. Let's read about this. The week of prayer of Christian unity is an ecumenical Christian observance in the Christian calendar that is celebrated internationally. Did you know that? It is kept annually between Ascension Day and Pentecost in the Southern Hemisphere and between 18th and 25th January in the Northern Hemisphere. It is an octave, that is an observance lasting eight days. This is from the old Roman calendar, by the way. The Romans used to have an eight-day calendar, and that was before Constantine basically solidified it to a seven-day calendar. But the octave is a Roman tradition. Just FYI. The week of prayer for Christian unity is annually coordinated by the World Council of Churches, with participation by its member churches, including the Assyrian Church of the East, the Oriental Churches, the Eastern Orthodox Churches, the Old Catholic Church, the Moravian Church, 
The Lutherans are in there, the Anglican Communion, the Mennonites are in there, the Methodists, the Reformed churches are in there, and the World Council of Churches. The Baptist churches are in there, the Pentecostal churches are in there, and of course the Roman Catholic Church, which is an observer in the World Council of Churches, also celebrates the weekly prayer of Christian unity. Isn't that just something? Now, the World Council of Churches, who knows how it was started? Well, we can look at it in just a second. But what is very fascinating to note is that the Vatican is also an observer with the UN. Now, if you know anything about anything, that means that really the Vatican owns the UN. And of course, they started it. They put together all these different vehicles for bringing the world back to the Mother Church. All of these things are dialectics, folk. Dark to light. Communism to Christian nationalism. This is the procedure of how things go. But all these churches are in the World Council of Churches. Beginnings. The week of prayer in Christianity began in 1908. That should be a prophetic marker for you. Shortly before the Vatican was created, as the octave of Christian unity and focused on prayer for church unity. The dates of the week were proposed by Father Paul Watson, co-founder of the Graymore Franciscan Friars. So a Catholic order and a Catholic operative, probably through these secret societies that they have. Look, the orders like the Jesuits, Franciscan, Dominicans, there's some really sordid history behind these, and that's all I'll just say. But nonetheless, it was started by a Catholic, of course. He conceived of the week beginning with the Feast of the... Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, which was then kept on the general Roman calendar on January 18th, the same day the Anglican Church kept the Feast of the Confession of St. Peter. Oh, would you look at that? Well, I guess we have the same God. The con- and concluding with the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul on January 25th. So this was a thing that was started a little over 100 years ago. Now, let's look at the World Council of Churches. This is something to learn about, the history of the World Council of Churches. The ecumenical movement went with initial success in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, including the Edinburgh Missionary Conference, chaired by the future WCC Honorary President John R. Mott. In 1920, the former ecumenical patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Germanus of Constantinople, sorry about that sound, I just had a motorcycle pass by, wrote a letter addressed to all of the Church of Christ wherever they may be. So before Athenagoras was Germanus, and he was also all about uniting the world's religions under the Pope. Isn't that interesting? He wrote a letter addressed to all the churches wherever they may be, i.e. we're all in the same church, urging closer cooperation among separated Christians and suggesting a League of Churches parallel to the newly founded League of Nations. Church leaders agreed in 1937 to establish a World Council of Churches based on a merger of the faith and order movement under Charles Brenton, the Episcopal Church of the United States, and the life and work movement under Nathan Soderblom of the Lutheran Church of Sweden organization. Now, there's so much to unpack in just this first paragraph, man. Who started these movements? Well, you have the Orthodox saying, look, we should start a League of Churches, kind of like the League of Nations, which again was a Jesuit Vatican creation. So let's start, you know, a League of Churches. Then you had the Protestants chime in, yes, let's do it. We got to do this thing. And they merged all of their faith and order movements and the uh, life and work movement into a world council of churches that now has practically all of the major churches in it. That's an interesting development in light of the fact of what the Bible tells you. 
Its official establishment was deferred with the outbreak of World War II until 23rd August 1948. Delegates of 147 churches assembled in Amsterdam to merge the Faith and Order Movement and the Life and Works Movement. This was consolidated by a second meeting in Lund in 1950, for which the British Methodist Robert Newton flew edited an influential volume of studies called The Nature of the Church. Subsequent mergers were with the International Missionary Council in 1961 and the World Council of Christian Education with its roots in the 18th century Sunday school movement in 1971. Many churches who refused to join the WCC joined to form the World Evangelical Alliance. You got dark and light, man. You get two things. All these people are merging and merging and merging. And some people say, no, we don't want to do that. So we're going to merge into our own world council of churches. What is going to stop the Jesuits from infiltrating such things? Or maybe they were behind this little alternative council anyway, just so you get the stragglers who'd refuse to be part of something the Catholic Church is doing to eventually bring all the councils together. Do you see how all this works? They control both sides, man. This is what you got to realize. But the World Evangelical Alliance and the World Council of Churches are very much a real thing, and they are full of every church there is. Now there's also this, the Parliament of the World's Religions. Bet you didn't know about that either. There have been several meetings referred to as the Parliament of the World's Religions, first being World's Parliament of Religions of 1893, which was an attempt to create a global dialogue of faith. There, there's the word dialogue. Fennec Fox. The event was celebrated by another conference on its... Con- centenary in 1993. This led to a new series of conferences under the official title Parliament of the World's Religions with the same goal to try to create a global dialogue of faith. So it was originally held in the 1800s, late 1800s. Then it was held again in in 1993. And now you're going to see increasingly more uh, parliaments. Like they're they're very active. We're going to read a little bit more about this. But see, look at Look at these parliaments. So initially it was 1893. We're going to read about this. Then 1993. Then 1999, 2004, 2009. Every five years, 2015, 2018, 2021, 2023. They're getting more and more frequent Parliament of World's Religions. But let's read a little bit about the Parliament of World's Religions. Another principal organizer was... Jenkin Lloyd Jones, a Unitarian. Unitarian organized the world's Parliament of Religions because we all have the same God, right? In 1893, the city of Chicago, which, <laughs> if you know anything about like the World's Fair and all the stuff that's happened with that, that that's another can of worms, but it's just interesting that it's in the city of Chicago. Hosted the World Columbian Exposition and Early World's Fair, of course, what I just said. So many people were coming to Chicago from all over the world and many smaller conferences called Congresses and Parliaments were scheduled to take advantage of this unprecedented gathering. Hmm. One of these was the World's Parliament of Religions, an initiative of the Swedenborgian layman and judge Charles Carroll Bonney. The Parliament of Religions was by far the largest of the Congresses held in conjunction with the exposition. John Henry Barrows, a clergyman, was appointed as the first chairman of the General Committee of the 1893 Parliament by Charles Bonney. The Parliament of Religions opened on 11th September, 1893. Now, do you know when the real birthday of Jesus is? It's very likely on on September 11th. So very interesting that if you know that these people are always trying to blaspheme God and to 
stick their nose out at God, that they choose dates very specifically. And it was very interesting that they chose to make a one-world type of religion statement on the birthday of Christ. But maybe it's a coincidence. Who knows? Uh, which was now the Art Institute of Chicago and ran from 11 to 12 September, 27 September, making it the first organized interfaith gathering. That was in the late 1800s. That's a prophetic marker, that it's the first, the world's first interfaith gathering to unite the world's religions. That means we're coming closer to the end, aren't we? And of course, as you can see, the frequency of these things, it's getting louder and louder. Today, it is recognized as the birth of the worldwide interfaith movement, with representatives of a wide variety of religions and new religion movements, including, it tells you the representatives of all these different religions, which we already went through, but here's one that you probably didn't know was at the World Parliament of Religions. The Theosophical Society was represented by the Vice President of the Society, William Kwan Judge, and by activist Annie Besant. Hmm, let's learn about Annie really quick because she's an interesting character. Nothing much to learn other than that she was the editor of Lucifer Magazine. Lucifer, a theosophical magazine, March to August 1894, who is the editor, Annie Besant. So you have a Satanist, Luciferian, and of course these people are connected to the Lucius Trust with the UN and all the stuff. It's all the devil's world, man. The kingdom of darkness has many different forts, but it's all the same kingdom. Nonetheless, the person that was at the uh, World Parliament of Religions, because, you know, Satan needs a representative there too. Of course, they're all representing Satan in some way, one way or another. But it was a member from the Theosophical Society that was the editor for Lucifer magazine. Isn't that interesting? Here's another one. Congress of Leaders of Worlds and Traditional Religions. The Congress of Leaders of World Traditional Religions is held once every three years in Astana. We're going to look at this in a second, but this town is, is the capital of Kazakhstan. It's also known as Nur Sultan. But why is it called Astana? I can give you a clue. If you take the S, that's the second letter, and put it and switch it with the A, you get the answer. But moving on. The Congress was initiated by President Nur Sultan Nazbarev of the Republic of Kazakhstan 19 years ago. So we had from the 1800s, then to the 50s, then to the 70s, then the 80s, all these successively more and more councils on world religions. Now this one is from 19 years ago, from the turn of the millennium. And they've had several Congresses. The last one was the seventh Congress. It was in, 19, in uh, 2022. Seems like they're happening every few years, but ultimately, what does it look like? Well, this is a picture and you can look this up if you're listening. Just look up um, Secretary General attended the 7th Congress of Leaders of World and Traditional Religions. Here they are. Here's Here they are in Nur Sultan or Astana. Change the S to the A and you get the answer of what's really going on there. But nonetheless, this is the picture. Look at all these patriarchs, Muslims, Buddhists, every religion that you can imagine. And who's in front? The Pope. Who's the one that you notice in all of this picture? The dark around him points to the light. Now, of course, some people are wearing white, but you really can't tell who they are. You can't really tell. The Pope is the one that stands out. He's the one that all these people point to. This is the whole point. He's the one that's glorified through all of this. He's the one that's bringing the world together through peace. He shall destroy many. 
the false light of religion. One more here for you. This is the Palace of Peace and Reconciliation. This is in Astana. In September 2003, Kazakhstan, the largest of the former Soviet republics, hosted the inaugural Congress of Leaders of the World and Traditional Religions. Spurred by the Congress's success, the president of Kazakhstan decided to make it a triennial event and commissioned the construction of a palace of peace and reconciliation that was to be the permanent venue for the Congress and Global Center for Religious Understanding, the Renunciation of Violence, and the Promotion of Faith and Human Equality i.e. this pagan temple that honors Lucifer will be where we will meet to plan our final world scheme. That's what that means in real talk. The pyramid-shaped building stands 62 meters tall with a symmetric 62 by 62 meter base. I'm sure there's some numerology in that, but who knows. The structure is clad in stone and glazed inserts with an apex of stained glass. The palace houses 1,500-seat opera house, the Museum of National History, the Research Center for World Religions, Library of Spiritual Religious Literature, like every kind of thing that you can imagine, from theosophy to Buddhism to Christianity. It's all there, folks. We have, we have a nice conglomerate religion ready for you. Just going to take a, just a little bit more time to bring it to the surface, but it's coming. It also has exhibition and conference rooms. Now look at this pyramid. I think by today, most people can recognize and have a Fennec Fox moment when they see this. You have a pyramid with another little pyramid at the top. If you don't understand what this is, and if you don't see the occult underpinnings of what's going on, and compare this to what the Bible says, that he will destroy many by peace, and that the world will worship the beast and marvel after the beast, then I don't know what to tell you. I hope that this has opened your eyes. The devil will be worshipped. God has decreed that the devil will be worshipped to separate those who are elect from non-elect because it will take a supernatural act of God to open your eyes. So if your eyes are open to what I'm saying, then give glory to God today. Give gratitude to God that he's opened your eyes because what is coming on the earth is a deception so powerful that according to Christ, it could even fool the elect if it were possible. You can't fool the elect because God has reserved them for himself. But if it were possible, this thing that's coming will fool the elect. It would, it would fool the elect. Meaning, the thing that's coming will seem like very, very good and reasonable and noble and just why not kind of moment. That's how it's going to be. That's how humanity started with the devil in the garden saying, look, why don't you just try the fruit? It's a good, it's a good idea to eat this fruit. Did God say that, questioning God's authority and God's word in the name of peace? By peace he shall destroy many. Now, God has told you ahead of time, Revelation 18, verses 4 through 5. I was wrong about verse 3. It's actually 4 through 5. But verse 3 is also important because it tells you, for all nations have drunk the wine of her passion of her sexual immorality, meaning faithlessness and false gospels. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Is that true? The Catholic Church, yes, it is very true. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Rome is a mercantile power, especially through Spain, the Inquisition, all these different things where it went throughout the whole world. Verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, 
and God has remembered her iniquities. May God have mercy on us all, because the thing that's coming will deceive many, and Babylon will be destroyed, will be judged harshly for her crimes. He will be giving her a double portion of judgment for her iniquities. So get out of her. Get out of this system. You have to abandon the two-party paradigm, the left versus right. You have to abandon this idea of the white hats and the black hats. You have to abandon the idea that there's a deep state and that there's people rescuing you from this thing and that the good guys are going to win and all this world peace stuff is on the horizon. We're going to have a golden age. It's going to be so great because this is what the Bible warned you about. You have to stop thinking that there's a political solution to the problems that are being exposed to you. They're being exposed to you to make the good guy look, or I should say, they're being exposed to you to make the bad guy look really good. The good cop is telling on the bad cop. And in the process, he's building rapport with you to introduce his new system, which is really the old system, but it's just got some fancy packaging on it. There's nothing new under the sun. The devil does nothing new. He just inverts things and he's predictable. But he's going to fool a lot of people because a lot of people are not saved. That's just the truth. That's just the truth of the matter. Most people are not saved and they will be fooled. You also have to learn the truth about the Sabbath and I'm going to put a link for that in my um, description to this episode or watch my end time series on the Mark of the Beast because that will come into play. Now, if that's going to ruffle your feathers or you think that's silly, indulge me and watch the series or watch the end times episode on the mark of the beast. You have to learn the truth about the end times because a lot of people are deceived. You have to hone your discernment. You have to study to show yourself approved. I've created quite the library on my website for a lot of great things. Go check it out. You can learn a lot about the beast, Christian Zionism, Christian nationalism. I cover these things quite regularly and I have a lot of great series that you can check out. All free, ad-free, watch them for free. I don't care. Check them out. Now, if you want to subscribe and do the monthly payment thing, that's great. I, I would appreciate it because that's the only way that I make money off of anything with, with this content that I create. And I don't intend on having sponsors. So it does help and it helps me do what I do to bring you unique content. But nonetheless, go watch it. It's free for everybody and share it with your friends. There will be a one world religion. It's unstoppable and... That religion is going to be Mystery Babylon. It's going to be a Catholic, Christian, nationalist type of system. Who knows how exactly it's going to pan out and what is going to happen and, and how they're going to enforce the mark of the beast. I don't really know all that stuff. I, I have theories, but, you know, at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What matters is you're aware of it so that you don't participate. So now the million dollar question is, now that you know the truth, what will you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> 